This is a Handshake Agency podcast. G'day, I'm Steve Bell, and welcome back to another episode of Rewind. So far, our Rewind trips have taken us back 25 years for Silverchair, 20 years with the Avalanches, and we covered a fair span of both the 80s and 90s with Billy Bragg, but this time we're heading back 30 years to late May of 1991 to look at a song by a much-loved Aussie artist, a relatively obscure cover, which had just completed a long and convoluted ascent to the top of the Australian singles chart, but whose journey was really only just beginning. This is the story of how a song that's become part of the fabric of Australian society and our national psyche was originally performed by US singer-songwriter Ricky Lee Jones, co-written by Walter Becker of Steely Dan, and arranged by its producer the channel Peter Gabriel and elements of prog rock, an unlikely alliance for an Aussie standard if ever there was one. And it very nearly didn't happen at all. Every Australian in this day and age is at least peripherally aware of The Horses by Darrell Braithwaite. Millions love it unconditionally, many out there no doubt hate it, but everybody knows it. The Horses was the second single from the 1990 album Rise by the much-loved Aussie rocker. Braithwaite had been the frontman for Aussie pioneer Sherbet, who were at the vanguard of the Aussie scene for much of the 70s, and after a fallow few years in the 80s, He'd revived his solo career with the 1988 comeback album Edge, which had gone to number one on the back of radio hits as the days go by in one summer, and then he'd back that up with Rise, which peaked at number three on the Australian charts, but went on to become the highest selling album in Australia for 1991, selling over 300,000 copies. The Horses went to number one on May 24, 1991, having been released as a single way back in January and would stay at the top spot for two weeks and ultimately spend 23 weeks in the top 50. And that really should have been the end of it. The horses should be just another stitch in the rich fabric of Australian music history, but in the intervening three decades, something weird has happened. My personal interest in the cultural phenomenon that is the horses was piqued a few years ago by an incident which is, at its core, the catalyst for this podcast. I co-own a record store in Brisbane, and we'll often do pop-up shops at festivals, taking the music to where the music lovers are gathering, so to speak. Over the New Year's Eve period of 2017 into 2018, we'd set up shop at the Byron Bay Falls Festival, and on the afternoon of New Year's Eve, I was working in the shop tent, which was about 100 metres behind the main stage, along the entrance to the amphitheatre. We had our own music blasting in the tent, going for that record store vibe, when suddenly this ruckus started, which completely overwhelmed everything. This massive noise, unlike anything I'd heard before, completely drowning out our stereo. It wasn't that busy in the tent, and we had plenty of staff, so curiosity got the better of me, and I wandered out to take a sticky beak at what was going on. Outside the tent, the noise was even louder, but without the competing tunes, I could now hear it more clearly and ascertain what it was. The imp- entire packed amphitheatre at North Byron Parkland, building out the chorus to the portion. Yeah. 
I wandered over for a look, and the sight was staggering. This communal outpouring of joy and emotion that far transcended any notion of nostalgia implied by Daryl's inclusion on the lineup at this defiantly young person's festival. And it was mainly young people bringing the noise. You didn't feel the presence of any mass irony or sarcasm, just to light to hear this song which obviously meant so much to them being delivered in the flesh by Daryl himself. Due to there being four instalments of Falls Festival that year, this wasn't the first time for Daryl and his band. They'd kicked off at Lawn a few days earlier, but as the singer explains, it was the same mass adulation at every stop of the tour. I remember, I remember arriving there at Lawn at the, at the Falls Festival with, with the whole the band and crew, and uh, we were sort of like, uh, we, as I said to the boys in the band, I said, God, I, I really do feel like a... Um, uh, an older person here, you know, like that we're we're <laughs> we're winning in the uh, who's the oldest here, and uh, even backstage and all that. But I, I was just completely surprised by the fact how well run it was because I'd, I'd heard of the Falls Festival and it was and and how they uh, had been going for many many years, and then to be on it was just a a thrill. But we we were a little bit concerned because we really thought. Well, the acts that are here are all in their their twenties or something like that, years of age, and uh, and here we are. And uh, before we went on, we stood on the side of stage and watched. I think the the, the band that was on before us, and they went really well. And then uh, there was this huge crowd there, all gathering, and and uh, and I said to the boy, "We're going to get massacred here. It's either going to go really <laughs> bad." Like we're going to go on. They're not going to know the songs. They might know the horses, maybe. But the surprise was that we went on, and uh, it, it was amazing even going on. And then we played the first song, and then we did a Sherbet song called Blues Walking, which is from 1974. And they even sang that. And <laughs> and as you were referring to, by the time we got to the horses, it was just. Uh, I think we all looked at each other when we hit that opening bar of the, of the, the horses and just went, my God, how good. Cause it, it really does, you know, there's no denying how exceptional it feels when you mm. get that sort of reaction. And, uh, and, and I'll remember it till, you know, forever. It was kids too, though. That's what, it wasn't people who grew up um, watching you. Like you said, it's a young sort of event. Yeah, it's just incredible that that's it's just pan generational now. It's pan. Well, it, it it is. It's uh, and I've tried. To, I think I've tried to explain it over the well over the last five years. Of uh, there's been a lot of things, Steve, that like tipping points. I think for um, the horses and and going back to the point where. Um, I, I guess going back to Hamish and Andy which would be maybe even 10 years ago when they rang us out of the blue and wanted to do a, a little piece on the horses and to make me sort of, what did they call me? Braithmate. That's right. Braithmate. And I had to, <laughs> I had to pick one of them to be my mate. And I think I took Andy in the end, but I, I think it was things like that that exposed the horses to a different audience and, for it to be accepted for some reason, no matter what age group. And 
And I guess over the last five years or so, it's just um, it's continued that that sort of line of thought. Hamish and Andy's support of the horses no doubt didn't hurt, but it hardly explains the song's meteoric ascent into the Australian national psyche. The horses are still a staple of commercial radio, played at both weddings and funerals, and pretty certain to be heard in some form or other at pretty much every race meeting ever held in this country, definitely the many that Daryl has tapped by commercial sponsors to perform it at. It's a favourite of both cover bands and karaoke lovers, and it's been tackled by numerous reality TV contestants. It's appeared in ads for Nissan, Bingle and Han Beer. In the AFL realms between 2013 and 2017, Hawthorne players would sing the horses after big wins, and Daryl belted it out with them at the Crown Casino after the 2017 flag. Richmond opened their 2016 season with a horses-themed performance involving both the song and real horses. While in other football realms, Melbourne Victory fans have adopted it as an anthem, and in 2018, Daryl even sang it all the way over in Kazan, Russia, to hardcore Socceroo fans on the eve of the World Cup opener. Daryl's sung the horses with Melbourne indie pop outfit client liaison at Beyond the Valley Festival, and even at Parliament House a few years ago during a Parliamentary Friends of Australian music event. The song is everywhere, and somehow means everything to everyone. Much love Australian TV, radio and podcast presenter and music aficionado Miff Warhurst believes that part of the horse's vast appeal is that such familiarity by Australian audiences has led to a loving acceptance rather than contempt. Yeah, and look, I, I, think, I think it's that intergenerational thing. Like their, their parents probably loved it. It reminds them, their, them of good times with their parents as kids. You know, because think about it in when you're a kid, you remember those songs that your mum and dad would play on the record player or the or tape or whatever that, you know, would have CD, I guess, in the 90s. You know, you remember those songs and, and that carries over when you're older. And whenever you hear it, there's that, it's it's not just a warm rush of nostalgia, it's something else, it's a comfort. And it's it's pure joy. And maybe that's got something to do with it too. It's got a really rousing chorus too. And I think it's it's a song that men and women can sing, like it doesn't matter what your range is. And I think that's got a real um, bonus. And we can trust Miff's views on all things Daryl because her affinity with the high-profile figure, no doubt like many people, goes all the way back to her own childhood, stemming from his many appearances on Countdown, the weekly hour-long music show hosted by Molly Meldrum, which was a must-watch for anyone with even a slight interest in music on Sunday nights throughout much of the 70s and 80s. Daryl was my first crush, I think. Um, I remember, it's one of my earliest memories because we used to watch Countdown with the the family um, every Sunday night. It was, you know, it was our religion really, like for many other families, I guess, because we lived in the country too, so we didn't have much access to anything. So it's probably where my music interest started and I remember walking up to the television and kissing it when Daryl was singing in Sherbet. It would have been How's That or something, if I remember that bass line, doo-doo, doo-doo, doo-doo. And I remember walking up and kissing the television and everyone laughing at me because it must have been pretty funny um, to see this little girl kissing the telly. But, yeah, I loved I loved Daryl, I think. I always thought he was very handsome. Someone who didn't think the world of Daryl or Sherbet back in the countdown days was Simon Hussey 
a man who was to play a hugely important role in the narrative surrounding Daryl's version of The Horses as both the song's producer and arranger. Simon at this stage considered himself primarily a songwriter. He'd co-written numerous Australian Call songs on their final album as a studio member of that band, as well as many of James Rain's early solo hits, and he'd even produced Rain's first solo album, which Daryl had heard and really liked. When Daryl approached him to produce his 1988 comeback album Edge, Hussey initially wasn't interested, and not just because he was really enjoying his role as a law reporter in the Supreme Court, but Daryl proved very, very persistent. But I was away in the Supreme Court doing circuit work around Victoria, so I was away all the time, and he would kind of ring my mum and dad, and um, and there was one particular night where Daryl would come down. He had this Suzuki Vitara soft top, because he was living in Mount Macedon with his then wife Sarah, and um, and he'd made the decision to make a comeback, and obviously he'd heard these tapes, and I wasn't interested in doing production work at all because I was always a songwriter first. So Daryl was kind of asking, and and Sarah was obviously part of that as well, and through my parents because I was going back to my parents' place on the weekend. Being away in the law courts in country Victoria, you'd stay away in a hotel for the week and then I'd come back late on a Friday night and I was about 25, 26 at this stage. I remember coming back one night from um, from uh, a country circuit and I saw Daryl's car parked outside my parents' place. <laughs> I don't know if I've ever told him this. And I thought, oh, no, Daryl's here to, um, you know, to kind of, not hound me, but convince me to, to be a, put an album together for him and um, or to be involved. And I remember driving around my area for about three hours because I didn't want to. <laughs> I didn't want to say no, and I didn't want to sort of think, oh, because I just had trouble saying no to anybody. So until he eventually went home, and I remember my mother saying because she was the musical one in the family that. She said, um, so you've been driving around for the last couple of hours, haven't you? You saw Daryl's car. So um, so that went on for a long, long time. And eventually I used to go into um, his then manager's office in Carlton after the law courts on a Friday night. <clears throat> it was probably weekly, and this is during 1987, and he played me songs. And I, I, not being a Sherbet fan when I was growing up, I was a Skyhooks fan, Um I, I just didn't kind of hear that there's anything that I could really bring to it um, as as being involved as a producer and I wasn't really writing anything that would suit him and and um, and I guess the way I looked at producing and arranging songs is as a writer. So if somebody gives you a song, then you kind of re- imagine how you would write, re- rewrite it or, or how you would have written that song. So... Um, and I would never do anything gratuitously just for, for money or just to be involved in it because I was quite happy in the law court job. It was a great job. Um, and, I, and I had the weekends writing my own type of music. So he called me in one afternoon as we went in and he played me this one song, um, which was a Todd Rundgren song called Pretending to Care, a demo that he'd recorded with Garth Porter, the ex-keyboard player from Sherbet. And... Um, and it was, he played me the song and after I finished it, and it was a very, very dark. It ended up being on edge on the first solo album. We did record it eventually. And it was the first time I, I thought, oh, wow, because of the low key it was in and the emotion of the song, um, 
for the first time, I thought, oh, wow, I've never heard Daryl Braithwaite sound like we have this ability to have this tonal quality in his voice. And first and foremost, being uh, growing up on Genesis and Phil Collins from the age of 12, so, and being a massive Peter Gabriel fan. And the album So had just had been released in 86, the year before, and that was really, really big. Um, so it was kind of relevant in the, the pop rock chart scheme of things commercially. Um, I just thought, oh, well, yeah, I can do something with Daryl now. If I think I'll just make you Australia's Peter Gabriel. <laughs> and then I can musically, I can relate to the songs that would suit you and then selling that idea. So that was kind of the, <clears throat> the, the seed that sowed the whole, um, the whole, it was really the embryonic stage of how it all began, the my involvement. Because if I'd never heard that song, I would have never been involved. Because he had this tonal quality, which he wasn't his default mechanism, because he'd always tend to sing in a higher range, which reminded me of Sherbet. And nothing against Sherbet, I just wasn't a, a fan <laughs> growing up, because I would have been, you know, 15 at the time, height of, and I was into, I was listening post Beatles, Yes, Genesis, and Skyhooks was the Australian band that I was into. Even though Edge had been a number one album, Simon Hussey had no real aspirations at the time to work with Daryl on a follow up. After the album's success, he'd followed his prog leanings over to England to check out the Genesis studio, in part trying to understand and emulate Phil Collins' drum sound, so it was a fortuitous phone call from an enthused Daryl upon his return, which coaxed him back into the studio to produce Rise. Oh, well, Rise is really interesting because I wasn't going to do Rise. So after As the Days Go By, I mean, we had As the Days Go By went to number one, uh, one, one Summer went to number one, um... Uh, the album went triple platinum. Um, it was, yeah, it was just absolutely huge. Um, after we did Edge, I went overseas. I went to England um, and to visit the Genesis studio, actually. <laughs> I'm trying to emulate that drum sound. The, um, I went to the townhouse uh, to, to that. It's called, what, the drum sound goes back to the John Bonham days, but it's the Phil Collins drum sound where you've got stone walls. So it's that very live, strong sounds. I came back and I, I wasn't going to produce anymore. So, so the whole rise thing um, was, um, was not even going to be on the radar for me. And then it wasn't until I think the November 89. And I remember Dale ringing me and, and, and talking about, Phil Collins had put out another band, Paradise. And he said, oh, I remember him saying, Simon, oh, yeah, the snare, when the snare comes in, because it's just basically drum machine and the snare drum comes in. And I had the album. <clears throat> Unfortunately, my father died that year in the November when um, that album came out. And, and um, as after speaking to Daryl again, and I thought, yeah, we'd probably have to do something different if I was going to be involved again. And... Um, it was a real challenge to how do you follow it up. And then also I thought maybe it's got to be something a bit more organic, not as kind of, because that was very 80s. Edge, Edge was very, very kind of on the cusp at the end of that very 80s. Um, um, yeah, that very 80s sound, which was very drum machine heavy with real drums, even though we did a similar approach with Rise, but... The, the, the idea of going with Rise was to make it a bit more stripped back or just a bit more natural sounding. But um, we had, a, had a, a, we, we, the biggest problem with Rise was probably defining songs. Um, and um, 
Daryl would come down with streams of tapes that he'd be given. So there was a long gestation period of uh, going through stuff. I didn't feel any pressure going into it, but I think um, I think in hindsight, the second album is always the worst one. I think I felt I think felt probably more once we had finished it, more pressure. To, I didn't I didn't agree with the first. In, I, at the time, I thought the first song that they released, I thought, oh, I don't know if radio is going to really go with this, you know, as be as big as like as what as the days go by was and that sort of thing. So, <clears throat> and of course, the the last song, uh, which wasn't rehearsed with the band, because um, normally we'd we'd um, I'd get all the songs and then I'd send the tapes to the band so they were familiar with them. We would rehearse them for a week then do the rhythm tracks and then do the overdubs and everything. And then, of course, the last song, The Horses, wasn't involved in any of that stuff. That was a, a last-minute thing. Um, so, um, yeah, it was a different uh, – we went to a different studio. Um, so it was uh, – yeah, I, I, I think um, – I think to the record company's credit, they didn't actually put any kind of – pressure going in saying, you know, this has got to sell more than the last one because the second album syndrome is always there. When Simon mentions that The Horses was a last-minute addition to the Rise sessions, he wasn't kidding. The recording of the album was well underway when a mate recommended to Daryl that he listen to Ricky Lee Jones' 1989 album Flying Cowboys, the first song of which was The Horses. It was a co-write between Jones and the album's producer, Walter Becker, from veteran jazz rockers Steely Dan, both revered artists in their own right, but neither synonymous with commercial pop hits. Nonetheless, the slightly jazzy arrangement caught Daryl's attention immediately, and although he knew it would need reworking, he felt it would be a great fit for the current sessions. We were near the, the, the end of recording it, and... Um, uh, I, I believe there was a friend of mine, Dale Cruz, who's no longer with us. He, I think he mentioned to me, Daryl, if you've got the Ricky Lee Jones album um, at home, the, the one that came out about a year ago, Cowboy, a Satellite Cowboys, I think it's called, um, have, have a listen to it, or Junkies. No, no. But anyway, it was, he, he suggested that, and I remember going home, after being in the studio and I pulled that the CD out, put it on. And the first track was uh, a song called the horses. And I thought, my God, how good is that? That, and, But the thing was that I, as I heard it, I thought I'd like to do it as an album track note, you know, and I could imagine Simon Hussey, who was the producer of the Edge album and, and Rise, I thought he can make it sound in the same vein as um, as the days go by. And so I took it in there the next day and I only found out about a year ago that that he and Peter Carpen, who was the A&R person, both rolled their eyes apparently and thought, <laughs> Daryl's been on drugs at home and thought this song could be... Uh, but they, they persevered and uh, I think... You know, Simon took on the challenge and then uh, and changed it around a little bit, not not melodically, but just musically, and uh, and it came out as it is. You know, so but most definitely as an app, an album track. Do you remember what drew you to the song initially, Ricky Lee's version? 
Um, I, I think like any song that that I've heard over the years, you know, that that I've liked, and and like same process that people go through. I heard it and I thought uh, I loved. I guess the, the lyrical side of it, plus the way that sh that Ricky Lee Jones sang it, and the, the dynamics of it, of because. Her version is even more, I think, more dynamic and more sort of a little bit in that jazz feel. Um, mm. But yeah, it was it was purely just one of those natural human instincts of like, that's a great song. I, well, that's in my opinion, you know, I could have been wrong, but I mean, you've got to uh, satisfy yourself anyway in, in those situations first and foremost. The Sony rep in question, Peter Carpen is something of a legend in the A&R world, having been plying his trade for decades, not just here, but in London and New York as well, and he's worked with artists such as The Clash, Leonard Cohen, and even Men at Work, who he signed to CBS in the early 80s before they briefly took over the world, and he's still a freelance A&R expert and artist manager to this day. Peter remembers the chain of events which led to him signing Daryl to the solo deal, which would put him back on top of the charts. And even at the outset, his belief was as much to do with the creative partnership between Daryl and Simon as anything else. I just arrived back from um, working in the, the UK and uh, working in A&R over there at CBS, which became Sony. And um, uh, one of the first things that happened was the previous A&R guy, a guy called Dave Novick, gave me about five demo tapes and one was Daryl. And uh, I'd known Daryl from years before working at Festival Records as a promotions guy. I knew the whole band very well. And um, so I went out to dinner with Daryl and, uh, and sort of started talking about these demos that he'd um, sent through. And um, I said to him, um, gee, the songs, they're, they're a bit different. They're all over the place as far as linking together. And he said, oh, yeah, yeah, but I'm going to get these producers to produce for me. And he um, he said, first name he said was Simon Hussey. And I went, oh, if you, uh, if you work with Simon Hussey on a production level, I'll sign you tomorrow if he does the whole album. And um, so that's what happened. I'd heard these demos that Simon had done with James Rain for James Rain's first album that I thought was sensational. I couldn't believe how good, good they sounded. And I thought he didn't even need to go into the studio and re-record anything as far as I was concerned, but he did. He went in, over to the US. But anyway, it always stuck in my mind how good these demos were. And so Simon was a big key to me signing Daryl, um, but I'd always loved working with great voices and... Uh, Certainly Daryl is one of those. So he was very attractive to me on that level. Once I put the puzzle together on how we would make this album, which was at the first album, Edge, as predicted, Simon did an incredible job on the production, uh, brought some great players in, great melodies and great song choices. When I heard the finished product, I thought this is going to work. Peter also remembers the first time that Daryl played the horses to he and Simon during the Rise sessions and agrees that he was pretty nonplussed about the song on first listen. Ah, uh, yes. It was actually um, Simon and myself had been hunting songs and Daryl, of course, and um, 
we'd come up with about, uh, I think, nine things that we felt really good about. But we were missing one final song to make up the album. And uh, we all went to lunch and we were talking about what the album is going to comprise of. And um, we asked Daryl, Daryl, have you got anything? Because we, we can't come up with anything else at the moment. And he said, oh, he said, I really like this track by Ricky Lee Jones on her second album, which was pretty unknown. And um, I certainly had never heard the track before and neither had Simon. And so we sat in the restaurant and Daryl played us the track. And um, it was like, oh, um, we weren't overwhelmed by what we first heard. And um, about five minutes later, Simon said, look, I think I can do something with it. And uh, so about four days later, I went into Armstrong Studios where the album was being recorded and they played me how far they'd gotten into the song and I just couldn't believe what he'd done. It just sounded brilliant. Simon Hussey also remembers not being totally enamoured with the horses upon first listen, but that he heard enough in the song to have a crack at reworking it for Daryl's album. You mentioned... The horses came in late in proceedings. I think you'd all almost fi- uh, finished tracking. We had finished. Uh, well, we, we were right at the, we were at the end of the, because um, so with with the tracking, John Watson, who's uh, drummed on Edge and on Rise, we'd spend a week with getting John's drums all down. So it came in pretty much right towards the end of John still being there. So it was... Um, it was something that Daryl has said, look, I've got this song. It's a Ricky Lee Jones song. And um, he just played it to me in his car outside the studio, basically, in Clarendon Street in South Melbourne. His, his uh, infamous Mazda 323 blue. I can remember it sitting in the passenger seat to this day. And um, hearing it and thinking, and of course it was a female singer, so we were, of course it wasn't used to hearing you know, but they were always male singer songs you'd get for Daryl, you know, so it was kind of like, okay. And I'm I, I kind of thinking um, maybe we can do something. And we might have been, we might have been a track short. I, From memory going in, we had enough tracks for an album because I wouldn't have, I would not have gone into the studio if we were a track short. So this would have been an adjunct um, as another track. And, um and remember hearing it and think, oh, we're going to have to change this because this is just too soulful and it's a bit too. It's it to me, it just didn't sound like Daryl at all. So I've got to, <laughs> I've got to go back to the, the old Peter Gabriel thing and say, how are we going to make this a Daryl song? So, um, my, yeah, n- initially it was the um, uh, Daryl calls me the butcher because <laughs> I tend to, with everybody who gives me a song, I tend to just make it uh, very cut any um anything that's a bit nebulous in there so with the original version of the horses which actually strangely enough i just listened to yesterday for the first time in 30 years um um we added a um an introduction to it which wasn't on the original and after the first chorus her her version has this kind of eight bar breakdown section which is just kind of does nothing it's just kind of a, a zone out section so i cut that out so the idea of it was to make it just verse chorus verse chorus and then that's it for daryl's version and a fade out where ricky lee jones's version is more elongated where she does the last chorus and then it kind of goes into 
the, the verse again and just phase it on that. So it was really the whole approach was simplified as, as easily as possible. And that was the approach with most of the songs on Rise, kept them all very simple. Approaching like every song was out could be a symbol. It's worth mentioning that a lot of people to this day contend that the horses is about heroin, given that horse is often the slang for the drug. Something that Daryl was aware and concerned about enough to touch base with the song's publishers, just in case. Just before we get to the recording of the horses, I, I read that um, you had slight concerns at one point that it might be drug-related and you had to check with the publisher <laughs> to make sure that... <laughs> I, I did for some... Well, there was, you're right, Steve. For, for some reason, um, I, I wanted to be sure... Uh, that I wasn't walking into a, like a minefield. Um, and so I, I did, I contacted the, uh, the publishers and just said, could you ask Ricky or Walter what the song is actually about? You know, like it's, it sounds like a fantasy to a degree, but anyway, and it came back that Ricky said it was basically written about her daughter. You know, and but people have said to me that, you know, the horses, heroin related, this, that, all that. And I thought, okay, well, you read into it whatever you want. You know, it's um, how I interpret it is a, it's a, it's a vision from her anyway. Miff Warhurst agrees that the horse's lyrical ambiguity and the ensuing universal appeal is definitely one piece of the jigsaw puzzle when studying the song's ongoing popularity. Yeah, I think musically or lyrically, like I said, it's it's hard to work out what's going on in it. And I think there's that sense of hope or optimism with a, with a hint of tragedy and you can't quite pick what it is. So you can, you can always put your own story onto the song and, um, and I think that's what's happened with this is that People have been listening to it and and put their own meaning into the song and therefore they loved it. And I feel like the kids of the 90s that were born in the 90s, they would have heard it from their parents and it might have been a song that their parents shared or, you know, and then that's carried on 20 years later and might explain somewhat of the resurgence now. Um, But people were initially connected to it because they could almost put their own story onto it, I think. Yeah, because I, I still don't know what it means. Back to the recording. Hussey credits session keyboardist and organist Scott Griffiths, at the time a member of popular Melbourne-based pop band The Shantuzies, for further pushing the horse's prog credentials when he brought the track's distinctive introduction to the table. We kind of shared the keyboard duties, but um, it was great having Scott there because when we were tracking, he'd be do all the keyboard stuff and do other dubs, and then I'd do some other dubs as well. But he, with the horses, he played all the piano and the introduction stuff. And I remember when it came time for once we'd finished the drums and the bass, and it was just, because I'd focus on one person at a time, Scott Scott looked at me and he said the next day, he said, oh, I've got something I think you'll like. Scott and I both love progressive rock, which is, yes, Genesis. And... Um, the introduction of the horses, which I think is probably once people hear that, that they know what's coming. It's that little um, ding, 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 which is like a the little thing on a marimba 
sound, which is like the little the motif notes um, that starts the song off. And um, that's actually quite a tricky time signature because, I mean, as far as a musical thing goes, it's kind of 3-4, then 5-4. So that's kind of nearly like progressive rock territory. But the way he's played it, people don't know. It's not just straight four on the floor stuff. Um, and that kind of dates back to um, a Yes album that had Own of a Lonely Heart on it, a song called Changes. And there's that, that sort of started off with that kind of idea. And, yeah, Scott, I always remember Scott kind of slyly looking at me. He said, I think you'll like what I'm going to bring in tomorrow. So, um, <laughs> And magically that, that fitted in. And then he did this little cross little bell thing as well, which has got an unusual time signature. So for such a song that is simple, when you think about, because the chords are really basic, there's nothing uh, complicated with chords, that little introduction stuff that goes on the top of it and the fairy dust behind it, I think is really really the magic uh, part that um, starts it off. This piano playing, which is the better the song, is just fantastic and through it. Hussey explains that when it came time to record Daryl's vocals for the horses... His dulcet tones, no doubt, one of the song's key selling points. It was all inspiration and little perspiration, with Daryl smashing his vocal take pretty much straight off the bat. Amazingly, um, with the, again, everybody had their, all the musicians had their own time in this some way they'd have a week allocated to themselves. And Daryl, we'd just do all the vocals all in one block. So when, we, when I would do tracks with um, on the album, I'd do the drums, bass, guitars, um, keyboards, and then the vocals. So all in a block. So we just wouldn't do a song, record, and then finish it. I'd Daryl would do his vocals day in, day out, all over a week. So he was in that mode. So it was just myself, the engineer, the assistant engineer, um, who was Matthew Thomas. He was a great guy, and um, and just Daryl. So it was a very, very close session. Never had any visitors in the studio. It was always a very private, like living in the submarine, really. <laughs> um, it's probably more my doing because I didn't like, you know, I liked things to be very um, private and, and it was fun. And we always laughed and um, made sure Daryl was happy and it was really good. Um, but the horses was one, and I succinctly remember because it, it can be quite arduous sometimes for everybody doing vocals because sometimes it can be a long a long journey getting it right and i'm not i'm kind of out of the the normal school of how producers work where sometimes they'll get a vocalist to sing the song through completely maybe four times and then what they'll do is then get the vocalist to come inside and then they'll sit down and compile the best bits of each take they've taken and then make one good take out of it I'd never worked like that since I was 19. I'd just get Daryl basically to run through it twice to warm up. And the third time we went through it, I just said to him, press the button, I said, I, I, I think that's it. I said, <laughs> except for like a, there's a couple of things that might be a little bit out of tune or a bit pitchy or some phrasing things, it was, it was the, the quickest vocal out of the whole album, the less stressful for him. And as I said, pretty much a one-take vocal except for a few patch-ups, I guess you'd call it. And I could probably put that down to that he's one of these incredible singers that, and he only ever sings songs that he believes in the lyrics that he can relate to. He will never do anything gratuitously. And 
um, and he really believed in the lyric in that song. You know, he could really relate to it. And I think that's where it just naturally happened and came out. Um, so, yeah, it was a really, and listening back to it, you can kind of hear it. It's just, a, it, it, there's such a purity. Um, and even his scats at the end is just uh, yeah, the, the range and everything. It was, it was effortless, but it, it's an amazing performance. Darrell reckons it was just his natural affinity with the song which helped him get it down so quickly. It, it's sort of like when I, when I gravitate to, towards a song that I really love, um, it, it does become easy. It's like, I guess, looking back at some of the recordings I've done over the years, like uh, even going back to Sherbet days, I can remember standing out there in the studio for what seemingly was hour after hour going over, you know, maybe just a phrase and singing it. No, not like that. And in the end, (laughs) it becomes a nightmare. It really does. So I think with the horses, it was because I, I really liked it that much that it it became, it, it sat, really well with me. And I think Simon um, probably heard it that way as well as he was recording it and thought this, this really sits well, you know, with Daryl, the whole thing. And maybe it was, I'd say it would have been two or three takes. That would have been it, but no, I don't think not the first because he would have had to get his levels <laughs> right. You know, it would have been his fault. I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> But you still bashed it out pretty quick, like it came pretty naturally. It wasn't like you oh. were agonising over it. Oh, no, no. And it was, uh, I, I think, too, with that song, it was like once you got into the chorus of that's the way, and it just then sort of took off. And and to this day, I still look back on the on the actual recording of it that Simon did where where he's got the strings that come in in the latter part of the, cor- the end choruses really high, uh, violins and it's just it's it just like you, you think you've got you reached a crescendo and then these come in ever so subtle and I still listen to it and go oh my god how good is that mm. so it's it's things you like that that I would have that I may have heard on the recording that also motivate you to you know to sing it oh we'll sing it with passion and and and, and it's not a hard sing Another happy accident in the horse's narrative was the last-minute addition of Margaret Ehrlich into the mix. The New Zealand-born singer had crossed the ditch a few years earlier and had a huge hit with her 1989 album, Safety in Numbers, which went to number five on the Aussie charts and scored her an aria for Breakthrough Artist album. When Simon's wife suggested that she would be perfect to provide the missing background vocals on the horses, Ehrlich wasn't just available and willing, she was also already on Daryl's label, Sony, meaning their last-minute addition, as Simon explains, was easily greenlit. Thing, I mean, there's so many elements um, as to this particular one, and it's, it's strange it being, it being an afterthought um, song coming in at the end of the project. Um, Margaret's involvement came about. Um, Sarah, it was a really serendipitous moment, really. I, I, after we were in the mixing stage of the sta- at this time, so all the musicians had finished their work. So it was just me and Michael Letho 
uh, the recording engineer and mixer. And um, we started kind of working on the horses and I'd gone back to, um, um, I had an apartment up in, in the city because I lived further down the coast, quite away from the studio. And my wife, um, Elizabeth, had then come up and um, I'd got back from the studio about midnight and she'd already had heard all the, the progress of the songs we'd done so far. Um, she was a huge Margaret Ehrlich fan, so we had Safety in Numbers, the debut album, which had only been came out late the year before we'd recording and Donnie really hit its straps. And, and I'd, I was really impressed with what I'd heard at home with Margaret's voice because it sounded like a very international album and I just thought she was amazing, her style and the song's great. And I just said to Elizabeth, oh, how is it going? I said, we're doing the horses, but it, it, it needs something. So we, we'd had backing vocals on the whole album. John Farnham did backing vocals on five tracks, um, purely for a colour thing. Um, so instead of Daryl doing his own backing vocals, just to add a bit of extra colour and depth as harmonies, uh, Shirley Strawn did backing vocals. Um, and I had asked a couple of other people to potentially do it. Um, and I thought, yeah, the horses, it was, it, it was just Daryl on his own at this stage. And he was away in China at this stage. He'd actually left to go over to see a friend in China. Um, he was an Australian journalist, actually. Um, and um, it was, it was Daryl had done all his vocals, all his scats, all the ends. So he'd finished his part. So that's why he'd go to China because he'd finished, he'd basically finished his part on the album. So we were in the final stage. And I'd said to Elizabeth, it just needs something else. So I think it needs a, another colour vocal in there. And I've, I've got to try and find somebody, I, you know. And then she said, because she'd been listening to Margaret on the drive up that night. And she said, oh, what about Margaret? And I said, oh, yeah, well, it's a great idea. I mean, because we'd never used a female vocalist with Daryl before. And I absolutely adored Margaret because I still think she's an incredible talent and one of the most unique vocalists to come out of New Zealand and, you know, still have um, Australia's been blessed to have her living here now. Um, so being on the same record company, um, being label, stable mates and uh, she was in the country, um, I spoke to Peter Carpenter, the head of A&R the next day and got in touch with her and um, she said, yeah. So she, we, sent her, um, we sent her our version and she listened to the original as well, I think on the day or maybe before, I'm not too sure now, but um, and she, she agreed to do it. So purely the idea was, as, as again, as a backing vocalist, pretty much what John Farnham did on a song like Higher Than Hope, to give it that, uh, just to bolster it a bit, because I thought it was just a bit too raw with just Daryl on his own. It needed something else. The importance of Ehrlich's addition to the horses transcends just the normal role of backing vocals due to the prominent position they were eventually given in the mix, which made the way that her voice and Daryl's intertwined seem almost like a duet in places. Well, it's an interesting one, actually, because we got, um, when, um, um, when we started mixing the song, uh, <laughs> we sent the... Um, because uh, uh, I was sick, unfortunately, so I had to do it remote by phone with Margaret. And um, so it was just Michael and 
uh, Letho and her in the studio side to say, well, I just wanted, I always loved double tracking vocals. The Beatles used to do it where you just sing to yourself and so you get a nice thick vocal. So, and she did her own ad libs. And so I pretty much just put everything we could have to choose from. And because the, because the, um, uh, the choruses that she sang um, that were even in unison and they were, they were kind of unison vocals and scats um, scats meaning just like little, little, um, you know, um, answering lines to what Daryl was singing. Like when Daryl says all the people in the world and then she does people of the world, it's kind of like a real bluesy follow-up thing, um, which is her natural thing that she does. You know, she, as I said, she's a very talented writer and, and a singer, so that all just happens naturally. Uh, it wasn't until we sent the first mix to the record company and they said, um, Peter up and said, uh, I'd said, brighten it up a bit. It just sounds a bit dull. So um, so we just, you know, brightened it in the mix, just brightened the sound of her vocal up, not necessarily making it louder, but brightened it up. And then just kind of went back and forth a little bit until it kind of got to the stage where, hang on, she's starting to sound as good on her own. Um, and, and so we eventually ended up um, doing a version of cutting Daryl out of, <laughs> of part of that chorus and just letting, so pressedly, effectively pressing the mute button and seeing how it sounded with just Margaret sounding on her own. And she sounded fantastic. sang it so strong and it was double tracked so it would stand up on, on its own um, but it was never intended to be a duet and it was be the last thing that was on her mind as I said it was all just a colour so um, so it was one of those things too where I know Daryl would have been at the time very aware of it not being a duet and um, and of course Margaret didn't come into it thinking she was going to do a, do a duet so uh, yeah, we got a got a got away with it. It's it's a strange one, isn't it? In the way that, in some ways, it's it's nearly a guest vocalist role. I think amazing. I, I mean, I nearly call it a guest vocalist role now because she does have that spotlight on her own, more so than a backing vocalist. Daryl is more than happy with Ehrlich's contribution, only ruining the fact that he's never had the chance to sing the horses with her in person. The unfortunate thing about that is that her and I have never actually sang it, you know, live together. And we've tried once or twice and uh, never, never happened, you know, for some reason. It was sort of she was at one gig up near Lake Macquarie about 10 years ago and she couldn't stay around, had to go home. And I thought, so I don't know, it's uh, hopefully... You know, there'll be a chance of, of doing it before, you know, I finish playing it. Another well-known Aussie who contributed to the horses was guitar with Tommy Emmanuel, who, alongside US musician Jeff Scott, added his distinctive six-string skills to the track. I think he did. There's a lot that a lot of that was done. Um, the instrumentation of it was, uh, and Margaret's vocal was done. I was away in Russia, not Russia, China, um, the year after the Tiananmen Square uh, to celebration 
And I remember ringing up from the hotel and not on mobile phones back then, let me tell you, it was, uh, and <laughs> I spoke to Michael Letho, who was the engineer on uh, Edge and Rise. And uh, he and Margaret was out there actually singing, you know, the, the horses. And I could hear it in the background. And I said, oh, God, well, tell her, tell her hello from Daryl in Beijing, you know. <laughs> and uh, that, that was, I remember that explicitly. It was just amazing. But I think Simon did call on, uh, you know, Tommy and Jeff. And Jeff's an amazing uh, musician as well. But uh, Tommy, I'm sure, I think he played some parts on on the horses, but Jeff played also, you know, parts on there because he was Jeff. Jeff Scott was like a what would you call it? We we well, I used to think of him as being he was like um, like a beetle because he 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 had. He had melody just inside him. It was just, you know, riffs and lines and all these things that he'd play on guitar or piano. And what about this? You know, and oh god. <laughs> so <laughs> it all it all contributed, I think, to um, you know all their input into the, the three of those albums: Edge, Rise, and Taste the Salt. Um, yeah, made, yeah. made them for their time. You know, just to made them uh, help to, you know, with the success that they got, I guess. Taste the Salt that Daryl just mentioned was his 1993 follow-up, which, despite going to number 13 on the album charts, would prove his last solo album for over a decade. But as the sessions for Rise were coming to a close, Daryl was feeling the pressure of the project in general and had no inkling that his last-minute edition was about to gallop to the rescue. I think it was the... uh the second album syndrome where you, you do um, you feel the pressure and having edge fortunately uh, you know did really well and and with the help of everyone i mean sony and radio and all that sort of stuff and then the second album uh there was a lot of pressure and um i think we came out of that thinking well we've done the best we can do we've got you know, we've got songs on there like Rise uh, and, other, and other songs that uh, we thought, okay, it's, it's a good, strong album. And never really thinking that the, the Horses, which was on there as well, was going to be a single. So that was always considered as an album track. Simon Hussey, who'd been so important to the Horses' transformation from the original Ricky Lee Jones version into the soon-to-be-smash hit Daryl Braithwaite rendition, also had no inkling what was around the corner for the song, even when Sony chose it as the album's second single after Rise's more upbeat title track. At any point did you start to think we might have something special with this song or was it just another one of the, you know, batch of songs at that point? I think I think at one stage I thought, well, we've got another song completed. <laughs> uh, I thought when the vocal was done, I, I, yeah, the vocal, I, I do remember thinking that's a fantastic vocal and we've got this nailed. And, and I think that being the last vocal um, was, um, 
was pretty much you, you, when you get to that stage, you move out of that studio, then you move into the mixing room, and then that's kind of the end of all the recording. The only thing we kind of do in the mixing environment, you might do some, I'd do some little keyboard things. You think of some things in the final stages, um, and occasionally you might bring in, bring in a backing wall. That's Margaret actually did her vocals in the mixing suite, as that's how late that was. So that was, as I was saying to you before, after tracking. Um, I remember when we were mixing it and um, this was after Margaret had been on it, Michael and I were playing table tennis and we used to listen to it on a ghetto blaster, the mixes on cassette to see how they sound outside. And also in in my car, we used to listen to all the mixes on cassette in my car out in the car park to do the car tests. So we had the ghetto blaster test, the car test and uh, to see how they sound. And I always thought it was... um, it, it worked and it, it built well and I built up well and finished well and it was, it was really nice. But no, um, I, guess, I guess because you think it didn't have anything anthemic or, and an energy at a radio level that you think maybe this is going to blow radio away. It's, it's kind of a ballad and it's kind of not too. That's the other thing. Um, so no, I mean I was um, I did the track listing for the album, and um, I've got some um, lucky to have some awards here for that. And on the CD they've got of Rise, I put it at number eight out of uh, <laughs> twelve songs or something. So um, down the order, and I do remember I think when I was up there um at sydney and they were talking with all the promotion people and said well, well um dennis hanlon i'm pretty sure it was dennis and dennis is a wonderful man as he's been very supportive in this industry for so long um and i think he got the horses at the time after listening to the whole album and he said why is the horses at number eight but it, it ended up staying there on the cd when it was released and to this day so but i um peter carpen liked it and then um um and i don't know whether at the stage that was and then it was the second single but they released rise first obviously because that was more upbeat but the record company did see something in it obviously once everything was done um once you do record covers and they've released they obviously saw saw the catchiness in it but when we were making it i and even daryl i don't think we thought we never thought that there was anything that that was going to blow the world away at the time so that's a great place to pull up stumps on episode one daryl's plucked the horses from virtually nowhere mid-album session convinced his somewhat dubious team to add it to the mix and it's come together in a rush just another song amidst an album worth of tunes augmented by a series of fortunate happenstance What happens from here is not even vaguely on anyone's radar. It's just one of those things impossible to see coming. You will grow and until you go And I'll be right there by your side And even then whisper the wind And she will carry up your right Thanks for listening to the first episode of Rewind's Look at the Horses. Make sure you check out the second instalment in which we look at the iconic film clip, The Slower Sense Number One, and try to get to the bottom of this song's enduring and cross-generational appeal in Australia. 
As always, if you've enjoyed listening, rate and review Rewind through your favourite platform or podcast app, and we'll catch you on the flip side. Rewind with Steve Bell is a podcast from the Handshake Agency Network, produced by Craig Trewick and Andrew Mutt, recorded and engineered by Zig Parker, theme music by Dollar Bar.